Well, we are beginning a new series this morning, and uh, I need to give a couple of disclaimers before I get started. Um, a friend of mine put me on to this thought and uh, this, um, this series. Uh, this comes from a series that was preached by uh, Craig Rochelle out of Life Church, and he had heard it and uh, sent me some of the resources, and he said, you should preach on this. And I looked at it and said, you know, I, I love some of the passages of Scripture in here, and I would like to do that. Uh, I was also motivated to preach on this because I have a sense that <clears throat> the reason our church, our churches in America languish is because our prayer life is rather shallow and anemic. And we just don't pray and pray with power. So I, I think there are times when people, you know, I, I love Jesus, I serve Jesus, but I only go to him when I got something to ask of him. Uh, and so we're not really praying, looking to how God wants to use us and do things in the world around us. And that kind of keeps things contained in us, and it doesn't get us beyond that. So we're going to look at this today. I would suggest that we spend a lot of time in prayer, praying what might be considered safe prayers as opposed to dangerous prayers. So we we pray things that seem safe, and I would even go a little beyond that and say we tend to pray things that are rather self-centered or self-serving. And so our prayer life tends to revolve around things like Uh, Lord, would you protect us and keep us safe? Lord, would you bless us and help us to prosper and do well with what we do? And Lord, would you comfort us and keep us from pain and and heal us when we're not well? And all those kinds of prayers. And uh, as I say those things, maybe you go, you know, Pastor, that's not me. I don't spend my prayer life doing that. But I can tell you, I have spent hours and hours and hours in my life in prayer meetings where we pray for people's injuries and surgeries and all those kinds of things because they're people who are suffering. But we ask God to do something and we remove ourselves from the equation and we say, God, just take me out of the way and you intervene over there and do something great. And that's my prayer. God, do something in this world, but do not involve me. I think that when we pray that way, we miss the very heart of prayer, which is, God, involve me. Do something with me in this. Let me be a part of what you're doing. And the beginning of that, I think, is praying and saying, Lord, Look at me and look over me. So here's this passage in Psalm 139, which, by the way, Psalm 139 is one of my favorite. Take some time, read the whole psalm. It's great. It's just packed with a lot of insight. Um, But I'm just going to look at these two verses today, verses 23 and 24. And in the NLT, if, if that's your Bible, that's great. If not, go ahead and read yours, because I will do a little bit of comparison later. The psalmist says this, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. 
And so today we're going to begin with the first part of this passage of Scripture where he just says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And so let's look at that. Because as we think about God searching our hearts, this is another place where maybe we start to want to pray safe prayers and say, well, Lord, you know, figure out what's going on over there, over at my neighbor's house. Figure out what's going on with that person that I'm in conflict with and and search their heart because I'm sure their motives are really messed up. But this is a very dangerous prayer that reflects on ourselves. It says, search my heart. And when we say that, we're saying, Lord, reveal what is going on in my inner life. What goes on in my thoughts and my emotions Those things that I've worked hard over the years to make sure they stay covered up and hidden. Those things that I don't just reveal. I don't tip my hand so that people will see that this is what I'm actually sensing and feeling and processing internally. Some of us are really good at this. And some of us are just, I think, naturally wired to process things internally others of us we tend to process things externally and that can be a bit of a difficulty in my home uh, and in my marriage we have this very different way of processing things I'm the external in case you hadn't figured that one out in case you don't know Kayleen and I that well I'm the one that if I've got to figure something out I'm going to talk about it I'm going to put it right in front where we can look at it and and actually deal with it. And my dear wife is the one who processes internally and she'll come into the room and say, make a statement. And I'm just like, kind of, where did that come from? But I come into the room and make a statement and she goes, wow, we're going to do something crazy. And I go, no, I'm just thinking. And so we we process these things differently. But but here's the thing, we all have an inner life. We all have this this internal stuff that goes on. And for many of us, if not all of us, a lot of that remains hidden. It remains undercover because I don't want you to see and hear and deal with every thought that goes through my head, every emotion that goes through my heart. Because this I know, they can't all be trusted. There are things that I think and there's things that you think and there's things that you feel and there's things that I feel that somehow we need to learn how to dismiss and get rid of because they're not trustworthy. And those are the places where we need to go, Lord, reveal that stuff and help us discern this because I do things and I think about things and I feel things that probably aren't appropriate. And out of those feelings, we generate and we build attitudes. So if I've thought about something and felt something and I've occupied my inner life with those things, I tend to build an attitude about those things. This is where we get all kinds of attitudes from. And so I want us to think about that maybe as God wants to search our hearts, he wants us to work on attitudes where we have relabeled them and given them other names because it's a little bit easier to deal with them and our own guilt if we can name them something that's a little bit more palatable. That's a little easier to get along with. So here's a little bit of a list. If we are going to relabel our names, and if any of you see, um, as I go through this list, if you see a pattern, raise your hand. I want to see if anybody catches the pattern. Somebody will. 
But we, we label things. So instead of saying, you know, I have an attitude of greed, I'm greedy, we say, you know, I just, I like nice things. You know, we relabel it. We make it sound a little bit better, a little more socially appropriate. Or if we have anger problems, we say, you know, I just have a short fuse and I really care about and value justice. If I have a critical spirit, we tell people, I'm just really analytical and I can, I can find problems very easily and that's my gift. If we deal with lust, we say things like, well, I just really appreciate beauty. If we're lazy, we say, well, you know, I'm easygoing and, you know, I'm not that worked up about things. We relabel it. Or if I'm jealous, we say, you know, I'm just a kind of a wishful dreamer. I look at things and I dream about them and I wish for them in my life. But I'm not going to call that jealousy. Anybody see a pattern? No? We justify, we, we, yeah, okay, we justify these things. We say it's okay, because if this is my attitude, it's got to be okay. All of these come from the seven deadly sins. So these attitudes come from a place where we occupy them inside our inner life, and we let them grow, and we build on them, and then they get to a place where they become natural inclinations to us, and we have justified them, as Karen said, so that we can just go back and say, It's okay for me to act that way. It's not that bad. But when we pray to God and we say, search my heart, we are asking him to go into that inner place and to tear off the labels that we have put there and and make things right because what happens in our heart dominates what we do. And so we'll get to that in just a moment. In the Proverbs, we read this piece of wisdom. People will be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their heart. There's that justification. I can tell you why I did it. I can rationalize it all day long. You can go home and say, I know exactly why Hank did it, and he had a good reason, but the Lord examines my heart and might go, you know, but your attitude really stinks. Your motivation is impure. What's going on in your inner life needs cleaned up. And when we pray to the Lord and say, search my heart, we are taking that really vulnerable big step and saying, okay, God, you can deal with these attitudes and rewire them. You can tear off the labels I've used and you can call them by their name. As we deal with this, though, as we go through these dangerous, this dangerous prayer of search me, there's, there's more to it. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And then it goes on and it talks about revealing my anxious thoughts, my fears. You know, anxiety and fear uh, are just about synonymous. Um, And it's interesting to me, I did a little bit of study and investigation this week. Uh, It's estimated now in America that one in five people have what is considered a general, uh, a general mental disorder or a, a, a general anxiety disorder. And so one in five, that's about 20%. It's actually around 18 point something, but about 20%. So one in five people. So, you know, the row that you're sitting in, if there's more than five people, somebody who's probably dealing in your row is dealing with some kind of an anxiety disorder. This is not uncommon and it's real. 
It's not just dreamed up. It's not just all in your head. It's that we have to deal with these things that cause us fear. And then it remains in us. And the fear doesn't go away when the, uh, when the stimulus goes away. And so anxiety is when fear just gets perpetuated longer than it should be. Fear's not a bad thing. Fear's the thing I feel when I go up the ladder to change the light bulb in here. And I no longer do that because I get about halfway up and I go, I have no business being here. And so I get down and I let somebody younger, stronger, and less wise. (laughs) I'm looking at this side because you guys know what I'm talking about. So fear is a natural thing, and and fear is an appropriate thing when we are faced with risk, when we're faced with danger, being fearful is good. But when the danger's past, the fear should be past. But what we do as humans is we continue to hold on to that, and the, the danger may have gone away, but the fear remains, and it remains and is resident in us in the form of anxiety. And so then it becomes something that is irrational. It doesn't make sense to have that fear because the danger is gone, but I still feel it. And I've been living with this kind of stress and I've been, I've been dealing with this kind of stimulus in my life enough that in the middle of the night I wake up and I've been grinding my teeth and I'm sweating and my heart is pounding and I don't know why. But it's real. It's real. Some of you have been around this. Maybe some of you have experienced it yourself. But when you're around somebody who's in the midst of an anxiety attack, it, it, it incapacitates them. It shuts them down. They may not even be able to stand up. And, and here, the psalmist is saying, you know, Lord, help me deal with my fears. Reveal my fears and give them the kind of dimension that they should have. Don't let them be bigger than they should be, nor less than they should be. Put them right where they belong. Reveal my fears. So as I was reading and studying about anxiety, so here's the thing. Um, This went around, and I probably should have tried to grab the video off of the internet, but this week in our state, right here in Kansas, somebody was driving down the road, and a snake was coiled around the, the, the side mirror of the car. Did you guys see this? And, and these people are driving down the road and, and the passenger's videotaping and it's a long snake. It starts to uncoil and go across the windshield and then they, they hit the windshield wipers and they, it swipes the snake off. And of course, I look at that and I go, wow, how did they keep from like crashing? And so for some of us, we think about things like snakes or you know, if I see a snake or I see a spider, I, you know, the fear is just incredible and, and I get incapacitated by that. Maybe for you, it's the idea of public speaking, being up here and doing what I'm doing in front of everybody when their eyes are on you. But researchers tell us that those kinds of things are not the biggies. They're not the big ones. The big ones are these three. We fear for our safety, we fear for our health, and we fear for our finances. Those are the greatest generators of stress, at least by what studies have revealed statistically. That's what really keeps us up at night. Am I in danger? Am I safe? Am I going to get sick? Or am I sick? And then lastly, am I going to have enough financial resources? And as I list those things, I'm sure that some of you sitting there go, yeah, I was feeling that last night. Or this morning on the way to to church, we had a fight about these very things. 
because these are the big three. Fear for our safety, fear for our health, and fear for our finances. I want you to just take a moment and look at this because I want to suggest to you that all three of those issues are addressed time and time again in Scripture, directly addressed by the Lord. There are direct promises related to us being safe, being cared for, being healed, and being provided for. It has a direct connection to the way the Lord has interacted with people throughout history and said, you know, these things, these are things I can take care of for you, and you cannot take care of them for yourself. Interestingly enough to me, I have scoured Scripture and I have yet to find a Scripture that says, I won't let a snake come across your path, Hank, because I know you hate them. It's not in there, unfortunately. But over and over again it says, I will keep you, I will cover you, I will watch over you while you sleep, I will give my angels charge over you, I will lift you out of a pit, I will heal you, I will bring healing to your sicknesses and your infirmities, and I will provide for you, and I will not see the righteous forsaken. Scripture is packed with these kinds of promises because God knows that these are the things that we have the most difficult time trusting and trusting him. But I'm also reminded of another scripture that tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And so as I look at these things, these are the kinds of things that a heavenly father promises to provide because he loves us. These are also the kinds of things that, that earthly parents seek to provide for children. We're going to keep our children safe, we're going to keep them healthy, and we are going to provide for them. And you know as well as I do, you can do a lot of things to our kids, but if you mess with these big three, we go into overdrive. If our kids are unsafe, if our kids are unwell, and if our kids are lacking, we get motivated in a hurry. Don't we? And I would suggest to you, as motivated as we are for the little ones that are under our charge, God is far more willing and able to address the things we really care about, the things that are outside of our control. Perfect love from God casts out fear that we have. The next piece in this passage from Psalm 139 talks about uncovering our sin. Uncover my sin. So when we pray to God and say, search me, know my heart, reveal my fears, and see if there's any wicked way in me. That's the King James Version. We're going to pick apart versions here in just a moment. Uncover my sin. So here's what I want to suggest to you. And I'm going to simplify this. I think sin covers a lot more than this. But this is something I really want to focus on. This isn't the sum total of it. So if you go, well, Pastor Hink said sin just has to do with actions. No, there's more to it. There's, there's sin in our thought life and there's sin by omission when we're inactive and things like that. But I really want to talk about our actions. Because this takes us back and ties into the beginning of this passage. We're basically saying to the Lord, examine 
what I do. Examine my actions. Because we recognize all the way back there when God searches our heart that our attitudes are what drive our actions into being. I do what I am motivated to do. And so our attitudes drive our actions. So if I have allowed attitudes that are unhealthy to build in my heart, chances are eventually I'm going to do things that are really unhealthy and harmful. And so our attitudes drive our actions. This is why a person who is dealing with addiction, you can't just tell them, stop. Just, just put it down. Stop. Don't, don't take another drink. Don't use any more drugs. Don't go and gamble again. Whatever the addiction is. Just, you can't just tell them stop. You've got to dig down underneath all that. And you've got to go, where is this stuff coming from? Why is it that it has such a powerful hold on you? Because something has burrowed deep into your heart. And that's what really needs to be dealt with. You see, our attitudes drive our actions, and our actions then in turn are what really leave a lasting impression. I would suggest to you that, that in the world we live in today, our words matter, but our words never matter as much as our actions. What we say makes a difference, but it never makes as much of a difference as what we do. And so I, I just, I want us to think just for a moment about how what we do reveals, maybe betrays what's going on in our hearts. So for some of us, we, we see this because, you know, I'll tell people, oh, I'll take care of it, I'll do it, but we don't do it because we don't really, it's not a high priority. We don't care about it. And we reveal, our inaction reveals things. Or we say, I'm okay with that, but then we stomp around and we're grumpy and we're, irritable and hard to be around and people go what's going on and then we we have to go back and realize that i've been holding on to this attitude whether it's a grudge or or uh some kind of injustice that was done to me i i can't get over that and because of that i begin to be really difficult to live with because that attitude has been able to percolate it's been able to live there for a while and reproduce itself and grow and and now it plays itself out in my actions it's always interested me how so many people think that they can keep attitudes very well hidden and you can't they just have a way of showing off when we don't intend them to Several years ago, I was counseling a woman who came to our church. And one of the things that she said to me as we were sitting and talking is she said, you know, if people really knew me, they would not like me at all. And I I was just taken back by that, first of all, because it revealed to me that she was living a hidden life in the midst of the congregation. And, And then as I thought about it, I thought, you know, wait a minute. And I responded to her and I go, you know what? I think people really know you. You think you've covered that up, but they know there's something wrong. And it shocked her. And I said, they may not be able to put their finger and go, we know exactly what she's been doing. We know exactly what her attitude is, but they've been watching you and they go, something just isn't right here. 
And I said, I went on to say to her, I, I'm guessing that if you reveal this to someone you trust in the congregation, if you go to another woman and say, you know, I want to talk to you because there's some things that are just messed up in my life. I'm guessing that pretty quick their response is going to be, that makes sense. I know. I figured there was something going on there. That, that, that this is going to happen because we think we've got it all hidden. We think we got it all contained. We manage our own sin, we think. But it has a way of leaking out and making a mess. And we don't always know where it comes from, but we know it's coming from somewhere. Actions leave a lasting impression. So I want to look at this in the NIV in verse 24. This is what the psalmist says. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I referred to it earlier because in the King James Version, it says, see if there be any wickedness in me. And so look at this little comparison. So see if there's anything offensive in me, God. Or in the King James Version, see if there's anything that's wicked But then I went back and I did a little more research and in the Latin Vulgate, an old, old version of the Bible, the most accurate translation is, see if I've done something harmful. And this is what brought me to this point of looking at, you know what? This has to do with our actions. Who have I hurt? And I want to suggest to you to take this a little bit farther and let God unpack this prayer in your life and say, okay, Lord, my motives may have been good. I may not have had a bad attitude. It may not have come from a bad place, but what I did harmed somebody. So yes, it may be that my actions are bad because of my attitudes, but we'll deal with that in searching. But when we get over here to action and what I do, I might do it for some great reasons, but somebody gets hurt. In military language, we call this collateral damage. You know, there's bad people on the other side of the world who want to do bad things to us. We're going to drop some bombs on them. And oh my goodness, we took out a village that had women and children that really don't care about Americans. Collateral damage. And so in the midst of doing something that was intended to provide safety and intended to bring good, we cause harm. And we can't just say to God, hey, but, you know, I didn't mean that. You know, I didn't intend that. That's not where, and and my heart's pure on this deal. We can't do that with God. When we say, okay, Lord, see if there's any wickedness, if there's any harmful ways in me. We're saying, Lord, My heart may be pure, but my actions may cause harm. And that's hard for us to accept. You see, in America, we attach something to our justice system. When people do things, we don't just look at what what they did. We also look at their intent. And if there was intent, we say, not only did you do something bad, but you had really bad intentions and a really bad attitude. And so if you committed murder and somebody got killed, they're going to look at, did you intend to do it? Did you plan to do that? Did you think about this for a while? Did you have this attitude growing in you? If you did, you're guilty of first Degree murder. We look at intent behind it. And then we go all the way down the spectrum over here to where we have things like manslaughter where somebody died, but I really did not intend it. But you're still guilty. 
And so even in our justice system, we go all the way from really evil intent to not bad intent at all, but somebody got hurt. Somebody got hurt. Somebody paid a price, and you're still guilty. See if there's any harmful ways in me. Let me tell you, when I pray that prayer, I sit here and I go, Lord, there's some I really don't want to know about. Just help them to forgive me. So when we say, uncover my sin, what we're really saying is, where have I done harm? Where have I done harm? Years ago, I sat in a church service. We were on vacation, and we were home in, uh, in Kayleen's hometown of Peoria. We went to church at the East Peoria Free Methodist Church there with, with Kayleen's dad, and we're sitting there in worship, and Pastor Ralph Park was the pastor. He was pastor there for year, decades, a long time. And Ralph Park was a guy who had a heart that was white as snow. If you could know this guy, you knew that he had no evil intent to harm anybody. He was a gentle person. He was wise. He was soft-spoken even. He didn't raise his voice. And when he talked to you, he was, he was very careful with his words. And I really respected Ralph Park. And he got up this Sunday and he was preaching, and I can't remember what all he was preaching about, but I remember this. It stuck in my mind because he stopped his message, and he said, if I've done anything that has caused harm to any of you in the congregation, I ask for your forgiveness, and I ask you to let me know so I can do something to correct that. You talk about a humble man. But that's because he could pray this prayer. Lord, see if there's any way in me that has caused harm. Where have I done harm? And then the last bit in this verse 24. Yeah, point out anything in me that offends you. This is New Living Translation. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. Or in another version, lead me in the ways everlasting. So search my heart, reveal my fears, uncover my sin, and then lead me in everlasting ways. And I like this because this is where all that other work that has been done sets us up for when we can really do what God wants to do. Now, sometimes we might say, well, Lord, lead us because that would be the most expeditious way to go. Let's ask God to lead us so that we avoid pitfalls and landmines so that we can walk through this life without incurring a lot of pain. That's why I follow God, because he keeps me from getting hurt and hurting myself. And that, my friends, comes back to those safe prayers. But when we say to the Lord, lead us, I I just want you to remember there's danger in that prayer because he does not lead us necessarily where we want to go. And so this is a humble request. When we say, Lord, lead us, it's like we're saying, Lord, we give up direction to you. We let you direct this, and we will follow. So it's a humble request. It is not a a comfort request. It's not a request for, Lord, lead us so that, you know, lead us not into temptation, so that we don't get tempted, so that we don't have to deal with these hard things. This lead us is lead us so that you take us where you want to go, even though we would have avoided that. Even though we would have sidestepped that. 
let me come to another piece of this. The psalmist says, lead me in these everlasting ways, in these eternal ways. Don't just lead me in the short term, Lord. Don't just get me through what I can see, but lead me in ways that get me beyond what I can see. Some of you might remember that months ago I, I, I preached a series on engaging poverty and what poverty really is in the world and why people are poor. And in that, one of the things that I brought up that's been brought to my attention, one of the things that happens for people who live in extreme poverty is they lose any ability to think long-term because you are so focused on survival, you are so concerned with just getting yourself through the day and making sure you have the basic needs met that you don't think anything about the long-term. You don't think about what do I need to do to prepare so that I can get beyond this years from now that totally rewrites the story. We tend to make the same mistake in our prayers with God because we tend to pray looking at what is right in front of us. But not eternity. We tend to pray based on what just came to our attention that grabbed our attention that looks like a crisis. But we tend to to dismiss praying about the big things that are going to matter, that are beyond the fog of eternity. And so i got to tell you that I pray for my family. I pray for my wife. I pray for my daughter, because I know she's going to be living long after me. And I've prayed for her family. But I don't pray very often about what my family will look like a hundred years after I'm dead and gone. I don't often pray about the person who will somehow be doing a genealogy research maybe a century or two from now and will come across me and my name and my grave and go, I don't know who this guy was, but he was one of my forefathers. And for them to have this sense that, I wonder if he prayed for me. I wonder if he thought about what kind of legacy he would leave. You know, one of the ways that we can look at this as well is not just beyond the legacy of family, but we can look at this as a legacy of churches. Because a lot of churches say, look, if this doesn't benefit us as a church, we're not doing it. We're only going to do ministry that builds our church, that brings more people into these chairs, more money into our offering, and helps us get a bigger, more beautiful building. But I really think that the churches that have a handle on the heart of God are the churches that say, you know, collectively we should do things for people we will never meet that won't know that we did it, but their lives will be somehow changed by that. We want to do things that get our churches the applause. The others around Wichita or around Free Methodism might go, wow, Northwest Church, that's where Hope and Healing Africa was birthed. And those people are amazing because they did, they, they, they fantastic church. But for some of us, we do it because there are people on the other side of the world that will live through a sickness. They will never know who you are, what your name is. They will never know that Northwest Free Methodist had anything to do with that, nor will they care. But in the, in the scope of eternity, it gives God another opportunity because we helped them. 
In another sense, you might go down to the food pantry on a Friday night and help out downtown at Rivercrest and somebody comes through there and you go, really, is this going to make any difference? We don't know. Are they going to come back and say thank you? I doubt it. Are they going to go home and, and get on social media and go, you guys, these, these people, they're amazing and we should make this go viral. No, they don't. They don't do that. They take the food and they go eat it. That's it. And so sometimes we do things not because of the way that we see a distinct immediate return on our investment, but sometimes we do things just because they're the right thing to do and we hope and we believe that somehow it will bear fruit in eternity. It's that conversation you had with someone, that spiritual conversation talking about God and they go, yeah, whatever, but it's planted a seed that will grow and germinate and birth something that you may never see. Lead me in those everlasting ways. Or another way to pray this prayer is this. Show me and orient me, Lord, toward the good that lasts. Toward the good that will make a difference whether I see it or not. I heard a story years and years ago that was related to me by a fellow pastor. He was leaving the ministry. And one of the things that I had been asked to do along with some others was to interview him and do an exit interview because we were quite discouraged and disturbed that he was just walking away from the ministry. This was a guy with gifts and graces for ministry. And so we sat down with him and we said, okay, tell us the story. What's happened? Is there conflict in your church? Why are you just, you know, he wasn't just asking us to send him to another church. He was like, I'm done. And so as we started asking these questions and he kind of fumbled around and finally he told us a story and it all came down to this. He said, you know, one day there's a couple in the church that called us up and said, we need to come over to your house. We need to talk to you. There's something we need to tell you. And he said, okay, come on by, you know, come on by. I'd love to see you. And these people showed up and the husband and wife came in and they sat down in the living room with he and his wife and they said, we have, this is what they said. They said, we have a word from the Lord for you. Now, when somebody says that to me, if one of you guys say that to me, you have my full attention because you're about to tell me something life-changing or you're about to tell me that you're way off base. That you've been listening to somebody but not God. These people were listening to somebody but not God. I'm convinced of that now, 20 years later. But they sat down and they said, we have a word from the Lord for you. And they said, okay, we're listening. Tell us what the Lord... And this is what they said. The word from the Lord is... If you remain here, you will not see the fruit of your labor. That was their word from the Lord. And so after about a month, they contacted our conference and they said, we're done. Because if we remain here, we're not going to see the fruit of our labor. And I sat there when they were talking about this and I was, I was going over this in my mind. And at first, you know, we were asking them questions like, are these people you trust? Are these godly people? Are these people who regularly have a sense of what God wants? Because this is a, this is a biggie. Well, yeah, yeah, we think they're godly people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, you know. And it didn't occur to me until the meeting was over and I was driving home. And I was, on the way home, I thought, so what? So you don't see the fruit of your labor. Are you only in ministry to see the good that you can do? And so I wrote an email back and I said, you know, I'm really disturbed because what I'm hearing is you guys will only stay in the pastorate is if you get to reap some kind of reward for that. Well, no, you misunderstand us. That's not it. And, and so we had a little bit of email discourse. But I said, 
If they say, if you remain here, you will not see the fruit of your labor, who cares? If there's fruit for your labor, that's what makes a difference. Whether we see it or not is all about us. He still left the ministry. And we lost a great pastor. And eventually we lost the church that he pastored. Because somewhere in there, people got mixed up and they got their priorities wrong. And instead of praying dangerous prayers, they went to God and said, keep it safe, help me to see, help me to be able to manage my life. And God says, I don't want you to manage your life, I want to manage your life for you. And so my friends, as we start talking about these dangerous prayers, we're going to start with a search me, God. And so here's my challenge to you this week. I would like you to spend some time this week asking God to just open up what's going on inside. Just do a little bit of open heart surgery, cut things open, and let's see together, Lord, what's happening there. So we can, we can deal with attitudes, we can clean out sin, we can, we can reveal fears for what they should be and dismiss them for what they should not be that God could lead us into what's next. Next Sunday, we'll come back together again and we're going to talk about the prayer that says, Lord, break me. So we go from search me to break me. And why in the world would we pray that? So in the meantime, would you do a little bit of soul searching with God and say, Lord, it's okay. You can run the microscope through my heart and see if there's anything in there that needs gone band let's come on up to the front we're going to sing in closing we invite you to stand with us as we sing our ushers are going to come by actually stay seated until our ushers come by because they're going to pass an offering plate if you're a guest with us feel perfectly comfortable passing the plate on but some of us have committed to giving to the ministry of this church to make sure things run after the plates pass by go ahead and stand with us And if there's something I've said that's poked at your heart and you go, you know what? I know. God's been searching. He's been doing this stuff and it hurts. And you want someone to pray with you. Pastor Stephanie's here. I'm here. There's others here that are prepared to pray for you. And uh, we invite you, if you would like to do that, you can come right up here to the front. We're not going to make a big deal out of you. We're not going to point at you, but we will pray with you. So... Let's sing together and after the plates pass by, stand with us.